Well, as Pastor Bob said, we've been in a series called I Am a Church Member. Together on Sunday mornings, we have been studying this journey towards discovering an attitude that makes a difference and helps us reach the full potential of becoming a church that Jesus desires of us. And if you have not read read the corresponding book, I would highly encourage you to, to read this short book. It is what this series has been based on. You can get the book for $7 at those retailers, Lifeway, Christian Book, and Amazon. In addition, there's a copy in our church library, and we have a few copies available in the library for $5 if you're interested as well. This morning, as we continue that series, we're going to be looking at a message I've titled, The Challenge of Change. The quote on the front of your bulletin reads, If it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. It's a simple but profound quote. It is a quote that many of us actually will probably find to be quite meaningful. We need challenge to find change, both in our lives and in the church. However, the challenge of change is that often the challenge will require us to get over our own comforts and preferences in life and the church. If there's one thing that we don't like in the church, it's change. Because it puts a challenge to our comforts and our preferences. In July of 2013, Fox 13 of Utah reported this story. A man was arrested outside of a church in Plain City on Sunday afternoon after authorities said an argument over seat saving in the pews escalated to a fist fight in the parking lot and another man being hit by a car. Weber County Sheriff deputies received multiple 911 calls from the church reporting that there was a fight in progress in the parking lot on that Sunday morning. Deputies said it began with an argument before the services were over about seat saving. The bishop told Fox 13 it was unusually packed in that meeting. There were more than 400 people in attendance for a missionary's farewell and the blessing of a baby. The argument continued outside in a parking lot, he said, where punches were then thrown. One man went inside to clean himself up and was returned to the scene only to find himself struck by a car. He ended up on the hood of the car, said the bishop. An individual was subsequently booked into the Weber County Jail on suspicion of aggravated assault, a third-degree felony, and disorderly conduct. While the victim in the incident was not hospitalized, deputies said, the bishop said that he, though, was personally very saddened by the fight. He said he was counseling both families and trying to bring the church back together. This is a place of worship, the bishop said. The bottom line is, we have to come back here next Sunday. The bishop continued, and if there's a teaching moment to come from all this, it's that split decisions affect the way we live, and there are always consequences. Some decisions were made that we cannot change at this point in time. But the reality is we're going to have to let the court system take care of the things we can't change now, and we're going to focus on bringing the families back together and bringing the community together and making this situation one that unifies and not destroys. The Mennonist story obviously had a preferred place to sit in the church and allowed their comfort and preferences to create tension, division, 
and distraction and ultimately violence. Obviously, as we know, not all church situations that are tense end with violence. Not all of them are going to escalate to this level. However, I suspect that if we were to look inside ourselves and look inside our church, those same underlining roots of tension and division and distraction and ultimately that which caused this situation to end in violence are present in many church conversations today, including our own. See, it starts when we allow the church to become a place that's ruled by our preferences and our personal desires. It's also present when we disrespect or we judge or we undermine and counteract others in our context because they are either of different preferences and convictions of our own or simply because they aren't something or someone that we prefer or desire. As I said earlier, the average church situation doesn't end like this. But I'm wondering if the average way of how we handle church conflict is actually any better. Perhaps one could actually say the way we tend to handle church situations and tension and fight isn't better. The average, in fact, it passively and aggressively, we could say, weaves itself into the threads of tension, division, distraction, disrespect, judgment, undermining, and counteracting. These threads then become the very fabric of our relationships, our community rhythms, and how we structure ourselves. The average church tension handled by individuals in a church community can actually prevent things from ever boiling or coming to a head. Healing cannot be found if these things are never addressed. Tom Rainer, the, the author of the book, I Am a Church Member, that shaped this series, wrote a follow-up book called Who Moved My Pulpit? About some of his, and in that uh, chapter 3, he writes some of his favorite petty arguments in which church leaders had experienced the challenge of change with it in regards to people's preferences and comforts and this is some of his favorites and some of my favorites that he listed there. And while some of these petty arguments will seem fickle and we will chuckle at them, some of them may strike home closer than we are willing to admit. One church, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. A deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. A church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two or three drawers, or four. A fight over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer. A petition to have all of the church staff clean-shaven. That's not happening. <laughs> Just get over it already. <laughs> a dispute or whether or not the worship leader should have his shoes on during the worship service. Or his Chuck Taylors. A big argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Finally, somebody gave a dime to settle the issue. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had used cranberry grape juice instead of just grape juice. I hear that really affects the, the symbolism of it. 
business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve this. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve, can or frozen probably, and major conflict when the youth bought a crockpot that actually had not been used in years. These sort of arguments happen when we make the little things important things. It's usually a result of wanting to legalistically declare and enforce our own preferences and values and comforts and enforcing them over the church community. In all these examples, what we see needs addressed is the reality that we cannot allow our comfort and our preferences to create both tension, division, distraction, and these things will ultimately end in the deceased church community. The more we fight over these little things and allow these little things to create tension within us, and the way that we constantly handle these things will only result in the death of a community. In fact, Tom Rainer has another follow-up book in which he calls it Autopsy of a Deceased Church, in which he has talked about several churches that he watched allow these little areas destroy them and ultimately lead them to be in a deceased church. This morning, I am going to read an account of Jesus and his disciples from Matthew 9. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 30 through 37. Normally, our preference is to read from the New International Version. However, this morning, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. So you will welcomely, hopefully, follow along with me, but on the screen overhead. Let's pause and just pray for a minute. Lord, as we gather to continue our series through I Am a Church Member, we invite you to speak to our hearts, to allow this scripture, this story, this account of you and, this, and your interaction with the disciples to speak to us, to challenge us, and ultimately to change us. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are constantly challenging us. Amen. Leaving that region, we see this in Matthew 9, 30 through 37 from the New Living Translation. Mark, sorry, I said Mark. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know he was there. For he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise again from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out there on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. So he sat down and he called the twelve disciples over to him. And he said, whoever wants to be the first must take the last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also welcomes my Father who sent me. I love the way Jesus handles himself in tough situations. In fact, growing up, I loved... Come on. I loved shows like MacGyver, Magnum P.I., and the A-Team. How many people grew up watching these shows or have seen these shows? I see, 
All right, Bob, I'm glad you have. Larry, all right, get it. These were great shows for me. I loved rushing home from school and being able to catch these shows. And growing up, these shows were full of people that knew how to get themselves out of tense situations. Like 90 minutes of the show was based on them finding themselves in an escapable event and there was nothing but doom seemingly possible and they would either wordsmith themselves out or find some easy way out of the situation. MacGyver could blow himself out of any jail cell with just a few household chemicals. Magnum P.I. could get just the right team together of vagabonds to accomplish some daring rescue of a lost soldier or whatever. And the A-team pretty much could dress up and sweet-talk themselves out of any situation that they found themselves in. But Jesus, Jesus blows all of them out of the water with his ability to address doomed situation with fancy footwork and great wordsmithing. And I think we see that in this passage. Looking at this story through a different narrative, in this story, Jesus is on this missional road trip, and he's going through Galilee with the guys in which he's spending time investing in. And really, besides this discipling relationship with them, he is doing church with them. These are guys in which he spends time worshiping with. These are guys that he spends time building community with. These are guys in which he spends time doing mission together with. And on this road trip, Jesus begins to realize that his disciples need a little one-on-one time. They need a little more discipling. They need a little more investment. So he's starting to look for some teachable moments. He's noticed a few diagnosable symptoms of where his community is at. And you can't get to that level of discipleship in a public space when the crowd's around you. So Jesus sees the need to pull off, and he kind of goes off the beaten path, and he just sits there and invests some time away from the crowds where it's just him and the guys for a little bit. Jesus starts to try to teach them some further-down-the-road vision, some great insight of what God wants to do, some of the cool things that God has planned for the future. However, these followers of Jesus were not getting it. And as a result, they decided it was best just to ignore what Jesus was saying and not having enough faith and having fear. They just didn't ask Jesus what he meant. Maybe they were afraid of Jesus going to accuse them of not having enough faith, or maybe he, they thought he was going to call them sons of vipers or something. But however, instead of addressing the issue, they allowed their confusion to go unaddressed, and passively, aggressively begin to weave itself into the community they had formed and their relationships with each other. So much so that as they journeyed on, they began to fight with themselves. They entered a small fishing village of just over a thousand people. It was really the stumping grounds of Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew. They had just settled into a house in which they were borrowing, and Jesus realized the disciples had something unaddressed in their midst, and they had allowed it to take root and create tension, division, distraction, disrespect, judgment, undermining, and counteracting in their small group. And Jesus, being the original MacGyver that he is, jumps into the conversation and begins to weave himself into it, and he probably noticed them speaking loud enough to be heard, or maybe he saw them gathering in the parking lot and talking about things they shouldn't have been there, and not engaging things that they should be, but Jesus says, so guys, like, what are you talking about? And weaves himself into this awkward situation. Shocked, they didn't answer. In fact, they probably 
were in a deep place of shock once they realized that Jesus had heard them. Their lack to understand what Jesus meant earlier had drove them to create a conversation of discussing which one of them was actually the greatest, which one of them had the best comforts and preferences out of all of them, making them the greatest and the most important. Jesus sees this as a great teaching moment in which he knows he needs to address the people issues that are in his church community. But he doesn't address the issue straight on. He addresses the root of the issue. He sits down and he calls the twelve to relax with him. And as they began to gather around, Jesus gets up and grabs some random kid who apparently is in the house. And he brings the kid into the midst of their community. And he picks him up, he puts him into an embrace, and he looks at the disciples. He doesn't answer to them which is the greatest. He doesn't address the confusion they had in the beginning. But he looks at his friends and his church community and says, anyone who welcomes a little kid like this, for me, in fact, will subsequently also welcome me and the Father. And anyone who welcomes me not only welcomes me and the Father, but he will be made the greatest. He, this, is the most important preference. So what do we take away? What do we, can we learn? When you came in, you should have received the bulletin. Inside that bulletin, you'll see there's some notes and there's some places to fill some underscores in. And I encourage you just to follow along, to fill in those underscores. I think there are some really important takeaways that we can learn from this passage within regards to church tensions. And we're going to take a look at a few of those. First, the story teaches us that in the church... It is important that we are looking to welcome the preferences and the presence of God in our context. We see this point in the beginning when Jesus wants to invite them to a deeper place of understanding and he wants them to see the things of the kingdom and he wants to tell them about the things in which God has planned for them. But they miss the point. Jesus then ends the story with the same point and says, anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but my Father who sent me. God's preferences are the most important thing for the community. And that's what we learn too. Secondly, we see that tension and division in our context often can be enabled by confusion, fear, or the lack of willingness to press in and learn more. Jesus' didn't, disciples didn't understand exactly what it was that Jesus was saying. They were confused. The scriptures then say, however, or we could say, but the problem was that their fear, it says, kept them too afraid to ask Jesus what they meant, what he meant. They weren't willing enough to press in and learn more of what God was doing in this new thing. What was it that Jesus was revealing? Oh, I don't know. Our fear is keeping us from that. It was best, in their opinion, to just sit on the sidelines, to complain and talk amongst themselves with it, which eventually crippled them from reaching their full potential as a community and as individuals. Tension and division in our context can be enabled by our own confusion, fear, and our own lack of willingness to press in and learn more. It's when we allow our preferences and our comfort. Uh, comforts to dictate how we do church and how we live our lives that we miss out 
Thirdly, we must identify teachable moments to bring healing and realignment when we see others or ourselves placing personal preferences first. Jesus begins to see many diagnosable symptoms of where his community's progress is on their journey. He realizes that for healing to happen, those things are going to need to be addressed. He realizes that a corrective sense of realignment to their priorities must take place. Settling into the house, he identifies that moment. He, he finds a moment to teach them something when the crowds aren't around. He invests in them nothing but the vision of the kingdom, which supersedes both the root problem of their division and the current manifestations of it. We, too, must look to realign ourselves and to help others realign themselves in teachable moments. Our fourth takeaway from this story is that the church is a place to practice the values of the kingdom of God, like the challenge from Jesus to take a back seat and serve everyone else. As they rolled into this little fishing town, Jesus found his disciples fighting amongst themselves about who would be the greatest and the best based on the things that they saw as preferences and priorities of their call and community. Jesus calls them together and tells them that actually the most preferred thing, the best thing, is actually to find themselves taking the back seat, or as Jesus said, the last place. And to be the servant of everyone else. They weren't called to serve those who they were comfortable with or who they preferred or who they got along with. They were called to take the back seat, the last place, and serve everyone else. That is the call in which Jesus gives them. We are called to take a back seat. And as the story shows, we are to give priority to the outsider, the kid who was not in their midst, and somebody who was younger than them, a generation that had not yet been reached. Servant appears 57 times in the New Testament. 58 times we find the word serve. The picture this paints for us as followers of Jesus in a church context is that the back seat is important. It's a huge part of the DNA of the kingdom and why we do church. When I say the back seat is important, no one likes a back seat driver, right? You remember when you have been driving somewhere, maybe one of your kids or friends is in the back seat and telling you to slow down or not break so late? No one appreciates someone looking over your shoulder, right? The backseat driver is putting their comfort and their preferences on the driver. We must realize that taking a back seat means letting go of our preferences and our comforts and trusting God in the moment. Fifth and lastly, to reach full potential in both individual and church community life, we must overcome the challenges of priorities and attitudes. The disciples were not old guys, but they weren't the next generation either. As Jesus is telling them the most important thing is to be a servant at all, he reaches out and that small kid who probably was the next generation is brought in the middle of their context. Something that was outside of their context is brought inside. He tells the disciples that to welcome God, they must connect, reach out, and love on children like this. 
those who are outside the circle, who are tomorrow's church, and those who are not currently here in our midst are actually the greatest. They are the things in which Jesus is putting preference on. That which is outside and that is which is younger. When we do those things, we welcome Jesus who brings the presence of God. Our priorities and attitudes must not be of preference and comfort, but focusing, like Jesus said, on the outsider and the younger generation. In a book called Comeback Churches, Ed Stetzer looks at over 300 churches in which have successfully went from a place of decline to fruitfulness. And in it, he said the number one thing in all of the churches that needed to experience turnaround the number one thing was a struggle with a place of attitudes. That was the number one root issue. Folks, it's important to follow Jesus, to reach our full potential as a church that we get our attitudes in check. Too often the oldest generations dictate the margins for the youngest to operate within. Far too often the insiders make the rules for the outsiders to abide by. However, Jesus took the youngest person, who was also an outsider, and put him first. And if we could be honest with ourselves, many of us should be able to admit that we have often allowed our personal comforts and preferences to dictate the way we do church. As a result, we must begin to rethink and reorient ourselves to what church membership is, how we do church, and why we are the church why we are looking at this series, I Am a Church Member. You know, when you, when you join a country club or when you join a, a store reward program or a gym, there are perks. There are perks to joining that program. You get something comfortable for you. You get some type of discount. A commitment to the church is one to mirror Jesus who died himself on the cross. It is a commitment to what we give, not what we get. But we have operated out of the wrong mindset for too long. In rethinking the church, author and pastor James Emery White reminds us that rethinking the church has nothing to do with compromising the church's message. He says in the same chapter, yet the church's very survival in recent history has been tied to its willingness and ability to adapt to the unique conditions of the day. Success can only be continued through appropriate, thoughtful adjustments to our processes and methods. I'm going to read this one again. Yet the church's very survival in recent history has been tied to its willingness and ability, these are attitudes, to adapt to the unique conditions of the day. Success can only be continued through appropriate, thoughtful adjustments to our processes and methods. I suggest those thoughtful adjustments to our processes and methods begins with a willing realization that church membership isn't an entitlement to a preference and comfort. It's a commitment to serve others and to be challenged for the change and the sake of the kingdom. Ron Baduda of National Audiovisual Association said if Sports Illustrated magazine understood it was in the sports information business, not the publishing business, we would have understood that we would have the Sports Illustrated channel and not ESPN. It's been also suggested by many people that if the railroad business would have 
learned it was in the transportation business and not just one mode of transportation business, they would discover quickly that they were not in just a particular system of transportation, but in transportation itself and would have outlasted many of its peers. We need to get to the heart of what it is that we are trying to do with church. We need to get to the heart of what it is we are trying to do here at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. Same challenge that the railroads and Sports Illustrated have. We need to get to it. Win Arn, a church growth consultant, did a survey of over uh, 100 members in 1,000 churches. And each church he, he reviewed, and collectively this was the result. 89% of those interviewed said that the church exists to take care of my family and my needs. Only 11% said it existed to win the world to Christ. I imagine if someone would survey us, we might have some of those same statistics. Maybe if we realize that it's not so much about what our filing cabinet looks like or how long someone's beard is or if they drink a coffee and not a bottle of water when they preach, then we can get into the real things of the kingdom. East Petersburg Mennonite Church, to rethink the church, we need to understand how the world has changed, why certain approaches have worked in the past, and why they may never work again, even if we prefer them and are comfortable with them. In doing so, we will also find ourselves forced to rethink our own comforts and preferences. In closing, I want to tell you one last story. James Emery White tells a story about a time he was leading a conference. In Florida, in which he touched on the issue of music in churches, which we all know is a sacred cow, as a means to become more sensitive to those exploring the Christian faith. An elderly woman in her 80s approached him afterwards. She said, young man, I want to have a word about what you said tonight. She said, are you trying to tell me churches should use modern music to reach people today? Now, he had just spent 45 minutes saying that. And when he saw her coming up the aisle with her cane, he quickly chickened out and said, well, ma'am, I don't know, but I think it might help. What do you think? She answered, young man, I want to let you know that about as contemporary as I get is the Mantovi Orchestra, unless it's a weekend, and then I might cue up some Lawrence Welk. Then she took her cane and she held it out. She pointed it into his chest and she continued. So if rock and roll is what it takes to get people back to the church, all I've got to say is let's boogie. She had removed her comforts and preferences to be a servant to those in which a church had not yet reached. Worship team, I invite you to come forward, and as they do so, I leave you with this final challenge. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in your relationships with one another, have the main minds, same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider himself equal with God, something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And as we know, he took this form up to a place where it even meant death. For us, it could mean the death of our preferences or our comforts. And as a result, Paul said, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above all names. 
our challenge today is to ponder this question as we go. What will God do to the potential of East Petersburg Mennonite Church if we can put his priorities and preferences first, rethinking, realigning, and putting our own on the back burner?